from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Lisa Ortuno on July 21, 2014. Lisa joined the Baha'i faith the day her daughter, Zoe, was born in August of 2007. She has Master of Science and Ph.D. degrees in biology from the University of South Carolina, where she specialized in population genetics and molecular biology. She has worked with three international biotech companies since 2002, specializing in training and technical support for academic, government, clinical, and forensic laboratories. She loves to engage in discussions about the intersection of science and religion and participate in interfaith events, one of which is with an organization called Sinai and Synapses. I started the interview by asking Lisa where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. So I grew up in a suburb of Atlanta in a small area at that time, a little city called Smyrna. And I have one brother who's two years younger than I was. When I was growing up, my mother was a homemaker and my father worked for Bell South. He was often out working with people on a day-to-day basis and good weather and bad weather. So my brother and I grew up there until about when I was 10 years old when my parents were divorced at which time we went to live with my mother. Then I was with her through high school, and at some point my brother actually went and lived with my father. But that's where I grew up, in Atlanta. And what was spiritual life like growing up? So when my parents were married, we attended a Catholic school. So through fourth grade, I attended St. Joseph's School in Marietta, Georgia. And then when they were divorced, my mother could no longer afford the tuition for Catholic school, and so we didn't go anymore. And at that point, we really didn't attend uh, Mass very much, although my mother always considered herself to be Catholic. I was really uh, more influenced by my grandmother, who was my father's mother, who had been Catholic, but then she rejected that, probably around the time I was in middle school, and she started going to Pentecostal churches. And so my brother and I would tag along with her, and we would go to places where there were Lots of fire and brimstone being preached and speaking in tongues. I, I can still hear my grandmother speaking in tongues, as well as my grandfather, and the, the laying of hands for healing and that sort of a very fundamentalist Pentecostal Christian environment is what I was exposed to through middle school and part of high school. So what impression did that make on you? Of course, at first I thought it was pretty strange <laughs> as a small child being in what was often these very, very small churches or sometimes people's homes with this sort of uh, of prayer and worship going on. But then I, I got used to it, and I, I've never spoken in tongues. I, um, I hold nothing against people who do at all. Uh, I don't know what it is, so I couldn't explain it, but I certainly uh, have no ill feeling towards it whatsoever. Uh, but then what happened in high school was... I, like many people, tried to figure out what religion really was, you know, the true religion, so to speak. And so I studied with a a few different faiths. So 
One, I dated a, a Mormon, uh, a young man who was a Mormon in my junior year. So I got to have some exposure to the Church of Latter-day Saints for about a year. I also studied with Jehovah's Witnesses for a while, and I continued to go to some of the churches with my grandmother. So these were all very Christian-based um, churches. Um, unfortunately, I didn't have really much exposure to other faiths. So particularly Judaism, I really didn't have any exposure to that, or certainly any of the um, Eastern religions like Hinduism or Buddhism. I didn't have much more than you know the academic exposure that you get in, in your classes in high school. But it was very difficult for me because I came to the conclusion that none of them were right, and I rejected them all. And part of it was because I saw a lot of hypocrisy and judgmentalism and things that just didn't seem very Christian. And so I thought, none of this is for me, and I gave it up for many, many years. So let's let's hold that thought for a moment on that track, and let's talk about what your interests were growing up. So I knew probably coming out of the womb that I was going to be a biologist. So I spent my entire childhood in the woods or in the creek, basically, um, I was always turning over rocks looking for crayfish and frogs and bringing things home and putting them in my father's fish tank. And uh, I just always knew that I loved biology. At any point in time, I had a couple of frogs in a tank in my room or, you know, some sort of critter I always had. And so that sort of had me go through the classes, of course, in high school that were um, along those same lines. So I took a lot of the physics and the chemistry and the biology and all of those classes. I just was one of those kids who, strangely enough, always knew what, what I wanted to be when I grew up. Of course, Jacques Cousteau was very popular on TV at that time, and I wanted to be a marine biologist, just like he was. And then when I went to graduate school, rather than becoming a marine biologist, although I did get to study with sea turtles for a couple of instances, which was fascinating, I ended up studying American alligators. So I'm also a, a reptile person. So I love reptiles and amphibians. And so I was able to sort of move that desire to be a marine biologist into an area of specialty of evolutionary biology and genetics, studying of all things American alligators in graduate school. And I have a master's degree and a PhD in biology. So how was it that you were drawn toward reptiles? I just always thought that they were amazing and beautiful <laughs> for some reason. I'm actually sitting here looking at my bearded dragon, which has become a little bit famous. So not that I don't appreciate all creatures, but uh, I just have a particular fascination with, with the reptiles, amphibians in particular. So what makes your bearded dragon so famous? Um, she's been in a couple videos before. So um, previously... I had the opportunity to give a, an interview or, or produce a video that was put on the Huffington Post. So, and this is with an interfaith organization I work with called Sinai and Synapses. And they posted that video on their website, but it was also picked up by the Huffington Post. And it was also talking about the Baha'i faith. So my lizard was in the background for that video. So she's somewhat famous. All right, well, we'll get into that shortly. How long was it that you were a scientist without sort of a spiritual bent, so to speak? Um, yeah, I guess, I suppose if we have to use words and labels and things, um, I guess the word agnostic would apply because I've never 
felt that there was no God. And maybe that's because I was raised with this uh, foundation of uh, Christianity. I was that way through graduate school, just about. So for 20 years, I was an agnostic. Mm -hmm. And I just happened to meet someone who was a Baha'i in California who started explaining to me uh, some of the beliefs and tenets of the faith. And I was very attracted to that. So I started studying. For that 10-year period, had you run across any other spiritual paths that just didn't click and and then you ran into the Baha'i faith? Or was it just a a dry desert until you ran into the Baha'i faith? I don't, yeah, I don't think I really ran across anything. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, you know, it's... Very interesting how the human mind works, but I think most of us who have read anything about this understand all too well that once you have a sort of accepted something about the world, you tend to be attracted to things that confirm that. And so I think I was probably no different. I was actually fairly anti-Christian for quite a while, um, and that has to do with a very what I consider to be a very bad experience I had um, in high school with some people that I was very close to who were Christian and, and did not act like it. And so um, be, partially because I was so young and partially, partially because it was such a painful experience, I really, really rejected Christianity. And any time I saw Christian, what I'll call Christian hypocrisy, maybe that's not fair, but in my mind, that's what it was. It just reinforced that belief. I threw the baby out with the bathwater mm. is what happened. And so I really didn't come across anyone else during those times. So all during that time that you're talking about, I was in college, either undergraduate school, studying biology or graduate school. I didn't come across a lot of spirit, what you might call spiritual people. And the one person in graduate school who was very much a Christian and a biology teacher, a lot of people made fun of him. He was a different sort of character, and so I guess to answer your question, I didn't really come across anyone that I felt was worthy of emulation or any path that I felt was worth pursuing. Was it because this professor was very committed to his faith that he was ridiculed, or what do you think it was? That's a good question. I think because, well, for one thing, he would have uh, prayer sessions in the lab, And that didn't go over well with a lot of people. They felt it was sort of imposed on them, and it wasn't their belief. That made people feel uncomfortable. I think the impression was that he was somewhat, and again, I'm going to throw out this term. I'm not sure if it's exactly appropriate, but somewhat fundamentalist in his beliefs. That also turned some people off. And I keep in mind, this is in a a biology department where there's a a lot of people who are very atheist, there's just that reaction to religion. The reaction, yeah, that was that was the kind of thing that was going on. Right. So tell me how it is that you ran into the Baha'i faith. So I was working for a biotech company out of California, San Francisco. I was going on a trip for a scientific conference one day, and I happened to sit on a bus next to a gentleman who was a software programmer for the same company. I'd never met him before. It was a big company of about 5,000 employees at the time. And we just started talking, and he was mentioning these things about life that he understood and the things that he believed. And, you know, like a lot of people that I run into who um, accepted the Baha'i faith later in life, I also 
listened to what he had to say and had that reaction of, wow, I believe the same thing. Yeah, I believe the same thing. Or I never believed that to begin with. And there was so much agreement with what he said. And then he said, you know, this, I'm a Baha'i and I had never heard of it before. And so he had a phone and we immediately called the 1-800-22-UNITE number. And we left a message back in my home state, which at the time was South Carolina, and left a message saying that I was interested. And when I got back within, I guess, a couple of weeks, I got a phone call and I started studying um, with the Baha'is in Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, So what were the things that he was mentioning that just rang true for you during that conversation? So even at a basic level, one of the things I recall were the concepts of Satan and hell. Uh, I could never, you know, I was raised with those concepts of being very literalist. I could never really get my head around that. It just didn't make much sense to me. Those concepts are not literal places or beings in the Baha'i faith. And so he was explaining what that meant, that hell is is not, not being close to God. It's the absence of God and the absence of, of positive characteristics. It's not this fire and brimstone place, a literal place that's painted in the, in the Bible that I was taught. And the same thing for Satan. Satan is a metaphor for evil and our dark nature. It's not an actual being. And again, I could never really accept that. So those were a couple of the things that were fairly easy for me to accept. And some of the other core beliefs about, um, obviously, the unity of mankind is very, very a very attractive principle, the equality of men and women. And, you know, a lot of these things... Yeah, I've come to learn in studying religion over the past several years are not new necessarily. There are other faiths that embrace some of these concepts. And of course, the Baha'i faith says that these spiritual principles are just a continuation, that they've been around for a long time. But I, I heard it in a different way, and maybe I was ready for it at the time. But it really sunk in and it resonated, and I, I wanted to learn more about it. So you studied with the South Carolina community for three years, did you say? For three years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what was it that made you decide to actually commit to becoming a Baha'i after three years? Well, uh, that's another really good question. I think it's a good story. Like I said, I studied for three years. I studied with some amazing people, one of whom happened to be the chair of the physics department at the University of South Carolina among several people that I studied with, it was kind of a struggle for me because I kept hearing themes from Christianity that I had rejected. I had to figure out how to deal with that. So, for example, one of the big themes in the Baha'i faith, as in many faiths, is prayer. And I've always struggled with prayer. I continue to struggle with prayer. And one of the things that is stressed in the the Baha'i faith is to memorize prayers. And that rubbed me the wrong way because my interpretation or experience of Christianity as a a younger person was that oftentimes Christians would use prayers as weapons. So they would memorize certain passages in the Bible and they would use them against you if they didn't particularly care for your behavior. So I felt they were like bullets. And they were that idea of memorizing prayer was very negative to me. That plus the fact I wasn't sure that it was doing anything at all. 
I had decided that since I was going to give this faith a go, I would try it. And part of this is comes from my scientific background. So another aspect of the Baha'i faith is it's what we call scientific in its method. And we're supposed to test and ask questions. And then you will get some answers back, right? And so... I tend to do that in a scientific way. In this case, and all, it's not that scientific, really. Anybody does this anyway who is on this sort of quest, but I thought I would try it. So I memorized some prayers, and it, is, it doesn't come very easy for me. They were the short, easy ones. And what I found was that they would come to me when I needed them. It, it was a profound thing. And so even if it's, you know, I'm having an argument with someone, you know, and then possess a, a, a pure, kindly, and radiant heart. Something would come, and I would be like, whoa, okay, I need to calm down, try to have a pure, kindly, and radiant heart, right? And it was it was there for me whenever I needed it. And then I thought, well, I'll be darned. That's what the Christians were talking about, right? Mm-hmm. That's what's supposed to be happening. And that's probably what, what what is happening with lots of Christians, only I didn't understand that. During that three years, I was doing experimentation like that. I was testing what the Baha'i faith said, which meant I had better do it, right? Do this even though it makes me uncomfortable, and I really don't quite believe it's going to work, but I'm going to try it. And that's what I did. And I found many, many times there was a very positive effect in my life. And so that was happening, and then I got pregnant, and so, like I said, I, I signed the card, which is what you know we do here in the United States. There's a card that you sign to become a Baha'i on the day that my daughter was born because I thought, you know, I have a child. I have two sons previously who are older, but I have a new child, and I need to decide what I'm going to do. You know, now's the time. Do it or don't do it. And so I called these ladies that I had been studying with, and they were very happy to come over to the hospital And I signed the card, and it's a big joke uh, sometimes because um, I was under heavy medication (laughs) because I just had a C-section, and so we sort of laugh about that. But um, I'm very proud that that's actually the day that I became a Baha'i. Lisa, what made you stick with it even though things about it were turning you off? Why didn't you just walk away? There have been times that I've come close. For me, and I'll just speak for myself, which most Baha'is will tell you, right? We're going to speak for ourselves and not for the faith or for others. But um, there have been aspects of the faith that have come up periodically that that have challenged me. The first one had to do with certain readings in one of the compilations that we have, which is called Some Answered Questions. And the way that it's written and the way that I understood it went very counter to my scientific understanding of the world. And it really, really shook my faith. In addition to that, I had been studying with someone, or one of the people that I had been studying with, I encountered these passages, and I called him over. I said, this is, I said, I can't agree with this. I said, I I think this is wrong. And he came over, and we looked at it, we studied it together, and then he said some things that I felt were absolutely wrong. And this is a man who I have the utmost respect for, and I still do. But he's not a scientist. I was like, oh, my gosh, it was even more crisis of faith because this person that I respect so much and knows so much about the faith totally doesn't get the scientific part of this. And so because I've been a scientist, like I said, since I was born, I'm like, oh, my gosh, I got to go with the science. 
because this isn't right. And so at that point, I had to make a decision. You know, am I going to just quit this because it's a deal breaker? If this is wrong, then I have to put everything else into question. Am I going to continue to try to figure out some sort of way of reconciling this? Or am I just going to put it on the back burner and, you know, hang in there and just, you know, maybe come back to it later? And I did a combination of the last two. I let it sit for a while. And then I started talking to more people and studying more things and getting more context and growing to a a very different understanding of what I had read. And in that way, I was completely able to reconcile that huge crisis of faith that I had. And so, you know, sometimes things like that come up. You know, I'm dealing with one now that I'm really, really struggling with. But when I take a giant step back and I look at the totality of the faith, I just cannot see personally in my all of my research and my own experience anything else that comes close to it or anything else that can solve the problems of the world like this. And so I have to take that giant step back and look from the outside to have that. Otherwise, if I stayed stuck in these little, in the weeds, in the details, places that I may not have a true understanding, I probably would have left the faith. But something told you to, to hang in there. That's correct. Because I keep doing the things that it says and the, and the community, the people that are in my community now in Raleigh, North Carolina, and the ones that I still continue um, my friendships with in Columbia and everywhere I go, I mean, I just love the the Baha'is that I know. And, and around the world, I, I've been on pilgrimage to Haifa, um, all Baha'is, if you can go to Haifa, which is where the World Center is. Um, sometime in your life, you get put into a group of people from all around the world, and they are just beautiful people. And I love the spirit of the people and the faith. And I can't, if I'm going to be a true scientist about this, I can't disregard that, right? I have to look at all the evidence and not just disregard that part of it because something else doesn't seem to be working for me at the moment. And so otherwise I'm being biased. After you were introduced to the Baha'i faith and you were studying it for those three years, did that at all impact your work in regards to being a scientist? Probably not the work itself, but how I maybe approach certain things. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. So, for for example, one of the things that is very important in the in the in the Baha'i faith is consultation, and it's not that other people practice this necessarily yet. Maybe someday they will. This is the concept where if you have an idea and you give it to the group for for consideration, then it's no longer your idea it belongs to the group. So try not to get offended if they vote that they don't like your idea. So I've tried to bring some of these principles of consultation into some of my areas of work whenever that's been um, appropriate. And people seem to be pretty impressed by the concept. You know, whether or not we can do that is a, a different issue. But that's an area where I've tried to, I guess, it has affected my work. But I think overall, and this is just not my work necessarily, but my life in general, is the the concept of humility. And so as being trained as a scientist, of course, you're trained to scrutinize things very heavily. And what can, can come about 
as a part of this process, because you always have to defend your idea, right? Defend your evidence, defend your conclusions, is, is this sort of elevated egotism that can form, where you think you're right and everybody else is wrong until proven otherwise, and, and you know, not that everybody goes through that, but there, there does tend to be this level of egotism in the scientific communities that I've seen um, in some places. And for me, what becoming a Baha'i has done is really knocked me down a couple notches. It's not that I won't argue a point, and I'm sure if you ask certain people in my family, they would still think that I might still think I'm right all the time. But I think I really have come down on that a lot, and I'm a lot more humble. And that can also affect how I interact with my colleagues at work and in other places. So that's a Baha'i teaching you're saying? About humility, mm-hmm. yes. So what are you doing now with, with your work? So I work for a different biotech company now, and my job entails that I perform training in labs around the country. So I go and I teach people who work in labs how to do genetic analysis. And so I work with very small groups of people in hospitals or government labs or academic institutions, and I train them on my company's uh, products. So you don't work with alligators anymore? Unfortunately not. So you are mentioning a forum that you uh, are involved with. Could you explain that for us? Oh, I would love to. Yeah, thanks for asking. I'll give you a very brief background leading up to it. So several years ago, I gave a talk at the Association for Baha'i Studies Conference in San Francisco, and it was about the Baha'i faith and evolution, and this is a big topic for me. And at that time, through a series of events that I won't go into, I encountered some really amazing people and ideas. So one was a gentleman named the Reverend Michael Dowd, who wrote a book called Thank God for Evolution. I read his book, I actually met him, we had an interesting conversation, and his book talks about how, it's very Christian-based, about how Christians should embrace evolution and why they should do so. He put me in touch with uh, uh, another gentleman um, by the name of Carl Guyberson. So Carl Guyberson is also a thought leader in this interface between science and religion and evolution and religion. And so Carl put me in touch with another, uh, with a rabbi by the name of Jeff Middleman, who lives up in New York City. So Jeff and I have stayed in contact ever since then, and it's been, what, three or four years since that conference. And he started this group called Sinai and Synapses. And it is uh, out of what's called CLAW, which is a Jewish center for uh, learning and knowledge in New York City. And the goal of this group is to raise awareness or raise the voice of the people who believe that you can be scientific and you can also be religious. So trying to dispel this false dichotomy of either you have to be an atheist or you're you're a fundamentalist. There are many, many, many thousands, if not millions of people in between who are both people of faith and people who absolutely love science and the products of science. And so that's what this group does. So I'm one of the working group members, and there are several of us between several rabbis, um, an Episcopalian pastor, we've got science writers, we've got all sorts of people on this working group who are trying to 
put some things together. We're still building it right now. It's very much in the building stage, again, with that mission of raising the voice of people who live in both worlds. And what's the ultimate mission of the working group? So it really is to try to tone down all of this rhetoric that is out there in the media and the public consciousness about things, you know, things that have come out of the new atheists, Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and Daniel Dennett and all those, you know, we need to get rid of religion because it's child abuse if you teach your child religion and religion has done nothing good ever. To the other, again, side, I'll, I'll put it that way, although it's not exactly accurate, where you have fundamentalists who are absolutely, you know, convinced of a literal, literalist interpretation of the Bible and all of the things that are associated with that. And you've got, and so what an example of that is the debate between um, Bill Nye and Ken Ham, right? That's the classic example of that sort of thing that's going on and how it's positioned, right? It's the positioning by the media in a large part that's stirring up this contentious debate in the United States. For those maybe who aren't familiar with that debate, maybe you could describe what that is, those two folks. Yeah, in its worst expression, and, and there's a spectrum, right? But in its worst expression, you have the what are called the new atheists who are saying that there is no God and people who believe in God believe in fairy tales and they um, uh, are hurting this country, and that religion is all bad. And what they do is they take the worst of religion, and we know many bad things have been done in the name of lots of religions, and they can, that continues to happen. So we're not arguing that, right? But they take the worst of religion, and they compare it to the best of science. And they say science is going to, you know, save us, technology is going to save us. And obviously this is a very short summary and, and leaves out a lot of what their, of their message. But there's that part of the debate. And then you've got, again, this is only one flavor of it, but then you've got fundamentalist views across the spectrum of religions, right? I know I've picked on Christianity and it's not really fair because this exists, this view exists in other religions as well, but that the earth was created in 6,000 to 10,000 years, humans and dinosaurs live together. These are all things that science knows are not true, absolutely not true. And so we have this debate going on. And what we're saying is we don't have to have that debate, right? There are places in the middle that are not only fulfilling and, and more accurate, but they enrich one's lives by having this understanding. And as a Baha'i, of course, we fully accept that science is a way of knowing the world and religion is a way of knowing the world. We're compelled to use both science and religion to answer questions about creation. Science is a creation of God, our creator, and it takes information and beautiful discoveries from what we say is the plane of the invisible and brings it into the plane of the visible. Science is an amazing gift of God, as are the revelations that come from the different manifestations of God, like Christ and Muhammad and now Baha'u'llah. All of these things are sources of knowledge that we should cherish and embrace. And so this is why this group, Sinai and Synapses, was so attractive to me, because it's obviously interfaith, and it's consistent with what I believe as a Baha'i. Now, you're also involved with the Wilmette Institute. Could you 
describe what that is and what your involvement is with that institute? I've taught one class, so (laughs) I don't want to make it sound extensive. But uh, last fall, winter, I taught a class on science and religion. The lead instructor was a physicist from Silicon Valley by the name of Stephen Freiberg. So he asked me if I would teach this class. A a science and religion class has been offered in the past through the Wilmette Institute, and I've taken those classes. This one we wanted to have a different flavor. So we invited a reform rabbi to be a co-teacher with the class as well, which was very interesting and really stimulated a different type of discussion. But the goal of this class was to uh, get students to go out into the social media. And so it was a very action-oriented class. We wanted people to go find topics that were at the interface, interface, excuse me, of science and religion and watch the discussion, participate in the discussion, either just by, you know, typing in responses on a website uh, and then bring it back into the class for discussion with the class. Because so much is going on in social media, whether it's Facebook or just replying to an article in the New York Times science section, we want to be able to be in those spaces and give voice to some of these things from a Baha'i point of view. So that's what that class was all about. What is the Wilmette Institute itself? So the Wilmette Institute is um, a, a Baha'i-inspired organization that offers classes online that anyone can take. Obviously, there are a lot of Baha'is that take it, take the classes because many of them, many of the themes are are very much Baha'i-related, but not all of them. Some of them are about relationships or marriage. Um, obviously, the Baha'i take on marriage and relationships is a part of the class. But we have classes on uh, Islam for deepening, Judaism for deepening, any number of classes that people can register for and take online. It's what's what's called an asynchronous class. And what that means is you can log in through your computer and then read the information or watch videos that are presented anytime you want. So it's completely up to the student to log in and get what they want out of it and respond. So it's not one of your... The other style of online classes where you have to log in at a certain time and have a live instructor, um, it's not that strict. So it's completely at the um, uh, whim of the participant to participate as much as they want in order to get as much as they want out of the class. So, Lisa, do you have any ideas in your head that maybe someday in the future you'd like to pursue either in your area of science or in any other area? Absolutely, yeah. So for me, you know, I've been working in the biotech industry for, well, since 2002 when I got my, my degree. Uh, and, and I like it a lot. I, I like people a lot. I like teaching. But I think if I were to do something else, I would want to teach younger people. So I've always said like in the past 10 years, being always, that if I were to leave this job, I would probably not pursue another biotech job. I would want to teach. And what appeals to me, I think, is teaching at the middle school level. So I would like to teach science to to middle school students. But another sort of part of that, and this gets into something that's personal that I don't mind sharing, is that um, when I was 16, I, I got pregnant. And I made the decision not to have an abortion. 
And of course, the results of that having a son at 17 years old, you know, has lasted my whole life. You know, I have a, I have a son who's 26 years old. For me, as a personal goal, I would like to get involved with teen pregnancy prevention initiatives. And I've, I've actually started looking into that sort of thing. Sexuality and its expression in young people is something that's very interesting to me. And it's obvi- obviously something of uh, concern to a lot of people and communities and families. And I'm just very interested in that. And I would like, because I've had the experience that I've had, I would like to be able to give back and help other young people who, ha- who are faced with those types of decisions. And have you like visualized what that would look like if uh, you pursued that? I have, and I'm, I'm just now beginning to talk to people about it. And part of it, of course, has to do with the laws of the state, right? So who gets to teach those types of programs? Because obviously they're taught in schools. So teachers are teaching that type of material to the middle schoolers, but then they also take classes in order to do that. And so since I'm not a teacher right now, um, some of those training programs are not available to me. And I've thought about doing it in a, as a nonprofit and having my own program that I come up with and work with other people. But I have considered trying to get a grant, getting the credentials that I need to do this and having a, a program that are accessible to people who really need this information is something I would, I'm, I'm beginning to, to look into. Can you imagine what maybe your life would have been like if you had not run across the Baha'i faith? I have to make it very clear. I'm obviously not a perfect person. <laughs> I continue to make a lot of mistakes. I think I would be more egotistical and sure of myself I would not be nearly as aware of the benefits of Christianity and how good so many Christians are because I think I would probably continue to be very anti-Christian, but becoming a Baha'i has completely changed my understanding of Christianity and Christians in general. And so I'm, I've been able to, you know, not a hundred percent all the time, you know, and I still get frustrated with some of the, you know, things that I see not, and again, not just with Christianity, but just some of the things that I've seen in certain spheres, but I'm much less judgmental. And I, I like that about myself. I still need to work on it again, please understand. There's a lot I need to work on, but that's a big thing for me because my family is so heavily Christian. And so it's helped me be less judgmental of my own family. And so it's really improved my family relationships. Well, at first it didn't because certain family members were very upset that I became a Baha'i. But I think they're much more understanding of it now. They definitely are. My brother in particular has been extremely supportive. I know that would be different. I would also not be as more well-versed anyway with other faiths. So that part of this, being a Baha'i, has really made me dive much deeper into learning about other faiths. And that I absolutely love. I don't know that I would have done this without becoming a Baha'i. So those are a couple of things. Now, what was it about becoming a Baha'i that allowed you to uh, appreciate Christianity more? 
Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Baha, who are central figures of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah being the founder of the faith and what, whom we consider to be a manifestation of God, and his son, Abdu'l-Baha, wrote a lot about Christianity. They actually cleared up some things for me. In some of the writings, they talk about certain passages in the Bible, and they explain what they mean. And that made so much more sense to me, hearing it from that point of view. But then also, over and over again, you know, we're reminded to love people for the sake of God. And again, this is not a Baha'i concept, but it just happened to sink in for me as a Baha'i. You love people because they're people. As it says in the faith, you're always going to be disappointed if you love people for people because they're going to not meet your expectations. And the same thing goes in both directions. Same thing for me. That has helped me to really back off and say, you know what? People aren't perfect. And the people that have hurt me in the past through their judgments were also imperfect people. And then part of this being in the Baha'i faith, I've also been with other interfaith groups who are made up of, of beautiful Christians and Muslims and Jews and pagans. And so, again, I've been exposed to other faiths that includes Christians. Uh, and I've been shown all of these beautiful people who are very, very uh, much acting in the way of, of what their faith prescribes, even though, and again, we're all flawed. I've just been able to really step back from that Christian antagonism that I had and open myself up more to the reality there are just so many beautiful people out there wherever you look. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Lisa Ortuno, a scientist who supports the convergence of science and religion. You can find this interview and other interviews at www.abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Shower of grace, river of love, ocean of peace and truth. This joyous world, a divine play. All this, we are. Om.
is WXOJLP Northampton 103.3 FM your Valley Free Radio Station 
streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.